Hello and welcome, welcome back to um, Football Unfocused. Once again, I nearly forgot what our own podcast was called there. Um, this is the, I was going to say the regular um, football podcast hosted by um, me. My name is Mark and my good friend, Matthew. This is Matthew. Speak now, Matthew. Hello. Hello. Hello, Mark. Speak. Hello, Matthew. It's lovely to see you, um, Matthew. Yeah, so, so as you know, we've got a dog and uh, she's quite prone to howling. So if you do hear some... Wow, on cue. Just on, on cue. On cue, Matthew. That is incredible. My sound has just gone, by the way. I don't know whether that's in any way related to your howling wolf. It's come back, I think. Uh, it went for a okay, moment. Okay, it there. might have been. Yeah. Yeah, there we go again. So I feel the need to apologise because I said to our free listeners in the last um, episode that uh, we would be, now that we were back, we would be releasing these again with some more regularity after some kind of um, enforced break around the September time, which was to do with mostly uh, my personal life in particular, um, but and essentially the, the new addition to my uh, household, my new lodger. Um and then since then we've done fuck all. Um, so I can only apologise about that. It's down to our our uselessness in equal measure. But the aim now, I believe, is to knock out some of these um, with, to sort of coincide with the World Cup and hope that we can somehow um, get involved with the uh, the buzz and excitement around this uh, Qatar World Cup, the most uh, sort of glorious and righteous and non-controversial of all the World Cups. Um, and the festival of the ensuing festival of football, that we can um, start uh, sort of you know sharing our observations. Who knows? Matthew might even actually watch some football, and we can have some great chat on how the tournament's going, and maybe some of the uh, any wider issues that that crop up as they tend to do during a tournament. Um, so that's our commitment. Um, be prepared for us to break that commitment, but that is at this stage <laughs> our, our commitment. Um, I've got today. I want to talk about one specific um, issue slash individual. Before I do, I'm going to um, um, just uh, rattle through the the longstanding tradition. If you've not listened to this before, this is a podcast that is generally dominated uh, by my thoughts and observations and and my monologues. Um, that's not because I, I mean I am an egomaniac, but that isn't actually the reason. The reason is because. Um, Matthew has a slightly more laissez-faire approach to watching uh, uh, football and keeping up with football than I do. It's probably fair to say. Would you, would you agree with that, Matthew? Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the more laissez-faire end of the spectrum. End of the scale, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, therefore, he's quite a mysterious character to our listeners. So I try and open him up to the wider world by asking some really searching questions that, that, that give a, um, a, an idea to the man behind the enigma. I know he keeps, he, you won't be able to see this uh, listeners, but he keeps muting, which is really rubbish because it means you can't hear him, his interactions and his laughing, but he, he keeps muting because he thinks that <laughs> wolf noises will somehow detract from the podcast. And I said to him at the beginning that our listeners will love the authenticity of having the occasional howling wolf in the background. Um, but, you know, the guy, the guys, the guys, they're muting away, which makes, therefore will make the podcast sound even less interactive than, uh, than ever. But I can't get this fucking prick to listen to me. So Matthew, question yes. one this week, we are recording this on the 16th of November, I believe it is. 
Are you feeling at this stage festive? Um, yeah, I've been I've been sending my work colleagues a, a weekly countdown uh, to Christmas. Um, so I'm getting yeah, I'm getting getting excited. I, we haven't got a tree up yet though, so that's going to be that's when I really start. I mean, surely, unless you are a, a psychopath, even the most enthusiastic Christmas person doesn't put their tree up until 1st of December at the absolute earliest. I know, but we've got a few... Th- I think we're trying to... Me- yeah, we've got a few meetups, don't we? Or or your meet... Yeah. It's a busy calendar. It gets quite busy. What the fuck has that got to do with you putting your Christmas decorations um, up in your own house? Well, it's actually, to be honest, Joe does it because I do a terrible job. I don't believe that for a second. (laughs) I would trust you to come and decorate my house, Christmas or no Christmas. (laughs) Let you loose with the paint. So, yeah, yeah, I'm going to see if I can ask Joe to to put it up this weekend. Are you actually serious? (laughs) She might be resistant. 19th and 20th of November. So, my question, the answer is very much yes, then. You are... Based Very on that, yes. you are the most. You want to put your Christmas decorations up more than a calendar month before Christmas Day. I think, yeah, because we missed out a bit last year, and also Joe puts um, uh, little boxes of chocolates on the tree. So, um, and it counts down from obviously one to twenty-five. Yeah, from the first um, of December, not the fucking sixteenth yeah. of so, November. Yeah, so I don't want to miss out on. So hold on, is your theory, is your calculation that if you put the the earlier you put the Christmas tree up, the more chocolate she'll she'll just start stocking them from whenever you put the tree up? (laughs) She'll have to keep refilling them. Is that basically what you're hoping? Uh, I'm hoping, yeah. She needs to, yeah. She needs to order some vegan chocolate as well. Maybe I could do that. I thought you'd gone. I thought you were now vegetarian. Have you gone back to full veganism again? No, no. We're still we're still flirting with vegetarianism. Yeah. Still sort of bathing in milk. <laughs> We're basically milk. just drinking loads of milk and eating cheese. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Good. That was a fascinating answer to that question, really, and quite like quite disturbing because you always you always did strike me actually as one of those early sort of the sort of twat who would uh, get into Christmas really early, um, and that's been confirmed by your answers to the question. I've, we've also got a, a Christmas watch film watch list as well. Do you, do you have one of those? So we, so we have to. It will to be no surprise to you to know that no, I fucking don't. No. You don't. No, oh, I roll my eyes and walk out the room I... every time a Christmas film comes on. Oh, I'll show you my list. Yeah, I bet it's full think. of absolute bangers, isn't it? <laughs> I'm trying to think of a Christmas Where's film I like... actually like. Planes, trains, and automobiles. Yeah, all right, I'll give you that. There ain't, actually, <laughs> I, there's a few I like. Right, I like that Elf. planes, trains, and automobiles <laughs> for the presence of candy. Any film with candy yeah. Uh, yeah. is worth watching. Uh, and I don't mean the fucking uh, a sugary product candy. Uh, <laughs> candy of the John variety. Uh, <laughs> I like It's a Wonderful Life because it is the original and best Christmas oh, film. It's absolutely beautiful. And, you know, that's the classy option, isn't it? And <laughs> uh, I think that's it. Oh, I like Gremlins. People, people should need to think about that more as a Christmas film. It's set at Christmas. It's a Christmas film. Um, that is a brilliant film. And that yeah. ends my list. Mm. Elf. You don't like Elf? Not really. It's a bit Do annoying. Watch... Just, 
No, yeah. sorry, about, I was about to say like, something, but I'm not going to say it. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, I need to check the list. I'll send you. Oh, one. I'm sure. It's, I mean, I'm 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 incredibly lucky to live with somebody who's obsessed with Christmas films and is, has already started watching them. And uh, so I'm very <laughs> I'm very aware of um, of you know the long and endless list of Christmas films that are just on every year. And I don't mind if you're then going to sit, sit down. I mean, I, I think adverts? I hate Christmas adverts more than I hate Christmas films. I hate most See? things about, I hate almost everything about Christmas, but I like Christmas itself. This is the thing. I don't want to be pigeonholed as one of these miserable bastards who's, you know, deliberately um, contrary about Christmas or, you know, goes on about how much they hate it. I really enjoy the Christmas week. I enjoy the food and everything on Christmas Day and the family being together and the you know the merriment. I enjoy the, the feast of football on Boxing Day. I enjoy that that week. People always talk about all oh, these no man's land, the no man's land days in between Christmas and New Year. I actually love them. They're brilliant. There's, there's always football on. The darts is on. It's, it's an excuse to basically do fuck all other than uh, watch sport. Uh, I'll go, I'll go out for a run so I still feel alive. And uh, and eat and eat lovely food, and you do, don't have to do feel, you go for a run on Christmas Day. Normally, yeah, just that. because then I just feel yeah. not so bad about so much better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, uh, yeah, and then up to New Year. So I love all that, but I just hate. I find it absolutely nauseating the whole build up to it. I hate the. I know. I, know, I feel like a miserable bastard saying this stuff because it's so cliched to moan about Christmas, but the relentless commercialism of it, the way. That the the most the sort of ninety seven percent as the world's dullest people suddenly think that you know sticking on a stupid jumper and a and a hat with a bell on it makes them interesting. <laughs> no, you're still the same accountant. Uh, you just you just got a silly fucking hat on. You're a you're a twat. You know, forced fun, all the forced fun around it. I hate all that. Uh, and uh, oh yeah, adverts just do my fucking head in. And yeah. Yeah, I, I never. My view on it is, I never get to the middle of June and think, "Oh, I wish it was Christmas." You, Do you know what I mean? That's the I best really, time of year, isn't I it? Find, I um, I find it quite funny uh, for myself that I always say to Joe. So throughout the year, I'll say to her, "It's almost Christmas." So in like kind of March, April time, I'll be saying, "It's almost Christmas," Bloody and she'll say, so "That's your thing." Isn't it? That's your... Yeah, 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 that's my little. So you see the summer with all that, all the relentless hours of daylight and the just warmth, get, and get get through just this. Get through and, that, yeah. Get back to <laughs> the days of when you've only got six hours of light and it's uh, freezing cold, <laughs> lashing down. Yeah, just get through these this yeah. horrible warm weather. Good, excellent, and and just just quickly, one uh, element that I didn't pick up on there, you have been irritating your work colleagues by sending them a daily reminder of how many how many days no no you? weekly weekly right and you do that yeah. to what a, a full sort of team email do you saying uh oh, yeah yeah when do you start yeah. doing that uh minus three weeks ago <laughs> right so from the beginning of uh november but or, or from the last yeah, week yeah, in october yeah. so before halloween even Mm, maybe it's the week after Halloween. Right. So first of mental. November. Right. <laughs> Don't even get me fucking started on Halloween. <sighs> oh no, yeah, I'm not that. No, man, that is that's beyond. That is that's 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 full rage. Um, I think anything that a fest and a celebration that involves walking around in the dark. 
Yes, not uh, not for somebody whose eyesight's not deteriorating, for... <laughs> is it? No, it's not for me. No, one. yeah, good. Okay, question two. No, uh, come what on. What is your? It's twelve minutes. You have well. This is your fault. Once again, there he muted his dog. He tried to. Oh no, he's come back. It's come back. And it and how at? Because my second question is about your dog. So since the last episode, we've had uh, how many? I think we've had a couple of prime ministers. Um, and, and, but more, the bigger news is that, um, well, other than the fact that the, uh, the UK economy was crashed by an incompetent, completely out of its depth, uh, prime minister who even makes Boris Johnson seem like a safe pair of hands. But no, the big news is Matthew has a dog and it's a wolf dog. It is, it is, as you can hear, if he stopped muting his fucking, uh, uh, microphone you'd be able to hear it and you'd get some authenticity to what matt has got going on in the background he's got a lovely scene whereby his wolf dog uh do you want to tell the listeners your wolf dog's name it's a, it's a siberian husky it's a 12 year old siberian husky called kaido listen to that that's incredible what a noise it just it's just and the thing is that to me would sound like that dog is wound up but it's just sitting chilling isn't it making that noise you're talking and it's on mute, Matthew. This is the problem when you keep muting your microphone. Sorry. Stop muting your microphone. Just let the dog howl. People will love it. Yeah. I'm not sure they will. They will. Who doesn't love a bit of wolf calling? Come on, come on Mark. Just crack on with it. No, because you just, want to to, you just want to mute your microphone and stop. <laughs> I want to hear Kaido. Every time I see the mute go on the corner of your thing, I'm just going to stop talking. Uh, my third question. Well, no, actually, my question was going to be regarding so, Kaido. Husky, what is your gorgeous. dog walking strategy? Mm, I have to stick quite close. I mean, she's on quite a short lead, but that's primarily because if she's on too long a lead, I won't see. Can she not be trusted to have time off the lead? Huskies are quite renowned for running off, <laughs> right? Think, which is probably we probably should look that up before we got her. But do dogs not require like the, the freedom to just bound across fields with gay abandon? Yeah, I know. Hopefully, we can train her to come back. Well, she's twelve, so it's quite late to train a new trick. <laughs> yeah. But I guess the problem is because you've rescued her, which is fabulous and very noble. But do you know in her background whether? Maybe that's a skill she already has. Maybe she's a very obedient dog that you can trust to be off her lead. I don't think she was that well looked after. No, but that's just, <laughs> you only know about the last owner. It's like a second-hand car. She might have had three or four. <laughs> she might have. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Try it. Have you actually tried letting her off her lead? No. Yeah. <laughs> just... <laughs> Oh yeah, she didn't come back yet. I thought no, she they they always come back. I had a dog for like about fifteen years, and she we never put her on the lead, and she never ran <laughs> off. You just called them, and they come back, didn't they? Yes. <laughs> right. So your plan. So that poor dog is never going to get freedom in the open. Uh, we take her to places where she can come off the lead. Ah, our back garden and such. <sighs> I'm joking. There are other places. Third, well, yeah, but therefore, if you can if you can let her off the lead anywhere, then then uh, she can be trusted. Yeah, 
Yeah. Third question. Do you think having a 12, 12, I'm reading this off the bit of paper that I scribbled it down on. Do you think having a 12 year old wolf makes you an interesting person? (laughs) Um, uh, I hope so. Yeah. That is that what you were hoping for? (laughs) I mean, if there's anything that's going to make me more interested in surely something like that. A 12 year old wolf. (laughs) No, I think you should have gone for a 13 year old wolf. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good. Right. Trick there. Today's subject, I want to talk about David Beckham. And I'll make absolutely no, no bones about it. I don't intend to be complimentary about David Beckham. Now, ba- David Beckham has, in the last week, um, uh, made the news in a uh, less than favourable fashion. Um, because, And certainly less favourable than he would like, because this is a man who is used to uh, controlling his own publicity through... Um, an incredibly sophisticated and determined um, level of sort of marketing strategy and PR management that he has essentially done for the last uh, probably I'd say 24 years since the made no before then basically since he's been together with his uh, celebrity wife Um, and the reason that he has um, caused so much negativity is because he has accepted Ten million pounds from the Qatari government to be an official ambassador for the upcoming World Cup um, to promote not just the football in Qatar but all things um, Qatar. Uh, he is there's there's a really <laughs> a classically kind of nauseating and and uh, uninspiring uh, clip of him talking about the amazing spice market um, in in Qatar <laughs> in that. Um, uh uh infamous voice of his that you know just inspires us all um and the reason that that has created so much controversy is because he is somebody who uh in his you know in throughout his life as a famous person has specifically courted the support of the LGBTQ plus community um as a sort of you know cultural fashion and sporting icon he has used his image uh, to appear to be somebody who is uh bang on side with the lgbt people the lgbt cause and he's therefore labeling himself as a kind of you know a progressive modern man you know i'm not scared to put on a sarong i will wear what i like i don't care about sort of you know uh, bending gender expectations and you know challenging orthodoxies i'm this incredibly um sort of fluent modern man um and i'm you know the fact that i'm a you know a, a chiseled good looking heterosexual man is neither here nor there because i'm i'm sort of you know i'm i'm not going to be defined by your conventions i'm there for everyone and i'm an i'm an icon that everyone can relate to and that really gets to the crux the the, the fact that that is such utter uh, tripe, it gets to the crux of everything about him. Now, my opinion of him is that almost everything about his sporting prowess and his personality and what he stands for is built on um, a huge sandcastle, and that he is he, there is almost no authenticity um, and genuine credibility to anything about him. I even. Uh, I even take that back to his playing career. So to quickly go back to his playing career, David Beckham was a very good footballer, right? So I'm not just being completely ludicrous and, you know, churlish and 
and sort of spiteful about it. He was obviously a very good, high-achieving footballer, especially during his uh, six or seven years playing uh, under Alex Ferguson uh, at Old Trafford. And he won, you know, a succession of league titles. He was in the team that won the uh, treble in 1999. And, you know, he ends up getting in the England team and, you know, getting over 100 England caps. 60-odd of them were as captain, which I think might be some of the most um, caps that anyone's got as captain of their country. So um, I would argue, though, that he... So a couple of things. Firstly, uh, when he was playing uh, at Old Trafford, he, they always roll out that, you know, the, the infamous midfield. The, the core of that team was this incredible midfield. Beckham, Scholes, Keane, Giggs. Now, I would argue of those four, he is signif- by some distance the least talented player of those four. Um, and the, the reputation that he has built is still significantly greater than any of those other three, in my opinion, significantly more talented players. He was somebody who built an entire career on a very, very narrow skill set of being an exceptional striker of the ball uh, from a dead ball position and from a, a moving position with his right foot. He was able to create whip and infamously bend, of course, uh, and and dip with a football. He was able to get a ball up and down over a wall with exceptional levels of um, skill and accuracy. And as a result, his free kick taking was brilliant, although it has been surpassed recently in terms of number of Premier League goals and free kicks by James Ward-Prowse of Southampton. But, you know, you don't see him uh, just uh, whoring himself out to every, um, you know, brand uh, in, in the world with, uh, you know, deep enough pockets. But but anyway, um, so, you know, so I'm not being completely ludicrous about, um, about he, you know, he, he's a he he is somebody who what what I do respect about him in terms of his football achievements is he had a relatively minimal skill set but he got the absolute maximum about out of what he was good at and he got every drip he was a very determined player he was a very focused player um, but he's also you really have to ask yourself would he have looked as good if he had been there's two things I would say particularly you know his time at Old Trafford if he'd been playing in an era in which um, opposition um, defences actually had the confidence to press in the way that they don't uh, that they do now but didn't then there were so many kind of standoff old school flat back four left backs that he was then able to be out wide and playing it so they would stand off him and give him the time and space to whip the ball and the reason that's important is because he had absolutely no pace absolutely no trickery skill to actually take on a man there was no sort of subtlety of movement there was no kind of like mind bending like sort of step overs and revolutions that he was able to produce it was get the ball under control feed it on his uh, instep and whip it right so that is by anyone's standards, quite a quite a basic skill set to to defend against, and yet defenders in the Premier League in the mid to late nineteen nineties consistently failed to deal with it. And I used to find that incredibly frustrating to watch because I'd hear this relentless sycophancy of he, you know, his brilliance, and just look at it and go, he's he's doing really quite standard stuff, and people just aren't learning from it. But I suppose it is difficult because he was just one of many talented players in an all-conquering team. So, you know, they couldn't really go big on throwing everything at him because you you double up on him and then all of a sudden you're leaving Ryan Giggs or Paul Scholes, much more talented footballers, um, uh, unattended. So, 
fine. The thing that really, I think, winds me up, the, the two main things that wind me up about his playing career and the unwarranted mythology and iconography that, that sort of surrounds it, is firstly his time at Real Madrid. Now, David Beckham went to Real Madrid at the arse end of what they call the Galacticos era, where prior to him joining in 2003, Real Madrid had won um, two Champions, uh, sorry, three Champions Leagues in uh, 1998, 2000 and 2002. So what's that? Six years, three Champions Leagues. They were a, a, a high achieving side and they had done a lot of that, particularly post kind of 98 when they beat Juve in the final with a um, um, Miatovic goal. Uh, they um, they then started their strategy. Florentino Perez's strategy was to buy essentially world superstars and therefore the the sort of, you know, the the marketing benefits of the purchase and the sort of, you know, kickback you'd get in merchandising seemed to be as important as the quality of the player. However, that wasn't true initially. And when he first, he got Luis Figo from Barcelona, one of the biggest transfer coups, most audacious transfer coups of all time. He got the original and best uh, Ronaldo that's ever played football, the Brazilian uh, Ronaldo. Um, and Essentially, and obviously Zinedine Zidane, and had a team of absolute superstars that, for a period of time, they although they didn't domestically, they weren't always dominant, but they won uh, during that time. I think maybe four league titles and three ch- uh, Champions Leagues. So that I mean, that's pretty pretty exceptional. And uh, they had just won, or the only a year before that, they had won the uh, the last of those three. Um, before Beckham joined, uh, beating Bayer Leverkusen in the final at Hampden Park with one of the best goals of all time from Zinedine Zidane. David Beckham joins in 2003, and this is my frustration, because he joined during that era. When you get people talking about the great Real Madrid team from the turn of the century, he gets thrown in with those players when people lazily, without doing their research and without having the knowledge, reel off those names. They'll, They'll say, Ronaldo... Figo, Zidane, Beckham, without realising that David Beckham joined and immediately um, Real Madrid went into a period of three years without winning a single trophy. That is, I believe, the longest pe- the longest barren period they've had since before the Second World War. Now, I- I'm no... Uh, 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 Matthew, you've muted your uh, you've muted your uh, thing again because you're you're there chuckling away and we can't even hear you, uh, which is going <laughs> to you know once again uh, detract from the quality of this podcast. But there you go, you know best. Um, uh, I'm no strategic analyst uh, genius, Matthew, but you know I think that when you when you put one kind of overhyped superstar into a team that uh, that was high achieving and then immediately they stop they stop winning. There might be something to do with those two, you know, there might be a connection between those two um, uh, situations, those two facts. So in his last season at Real Madrid, Fabio Capello came and took over and saw him as the problem and dumped him out, said, you're not going to play for Real Madrid again. And this team lacks discipline. I'm going to start playing. Um, I'm going to sort of, you know, um, uh, sort of refresh the team. I'm going to give younger, more dynamic players. I'm going to make purchases that are less to do with kind of names and more to do with actual what they're, you know, producing on the pitch. And Real Madrid went on to win the league that season. 
David Beckham, to his credit, didn't bitch about it. He got his head down and eventually, in the second half of that season, through his attitude, won Capello back over, started getting substitute appearances. And I think overall, he played around 20 times, most of them off the bench. But to be fair to him, he did. But it doesn't change the fact that the Beckham era Real Madrid needed flushing out in order for them to be good again. And then he goes at the end of that season and plays for, well, four or five years in the, you know, Mickey Mouse Super League or whatever it's bloody called, Disney League over in America and sort of, you know, just, and they were still prime years of his uh, career. But I think he knew that the the time was up um, when it came to England, although he he still thought that, you know, the the arrogance and the delusion of thinking that he could still play for England um, when he was, you know, playing in the, you know, whatever it's called, Dunkin' Donuts Cup. Um, <laughs> w- w- ludicrous, really. And I think Steve McLaren, Wally would have probably initially sort of dumped him out. And then ironically, I think Capello took back over him because he'd been won over at Real Madrid, sort of gave him a chance for a bit, but it was never really going to work because I think by then he wasn't playing elite European football anymore and couldn't really cut it. And here's, which leads to the second of my frustrations, uh, that he is regarded by many as an England icon, an England playing icon, um, based on the fact that he got over 100 caps um, and was captain for a long period of time. What they fail to recognise and willfully choose to ignore, I think, in a lot of cases, is uh, the period in which he presided over. He was captain during a spell of almost unprecedented quality in terms of England's, um, you know, the availability that England had um, to pick top quality European superstars, you know, any one time during that time. So he joins a team that still has the sort of, you know, the back end of the Euro 96 era. So he's still playing with, um, you know, people like Alan Shearer and and, uh, Tony Adams. He's got other brilliant defenders like Sol Campbell. He's got Paul Lintz, David Batty, um, the ends of sort of, you know, Paul Gascoigne. Um, And then that then evolves into a team with, you know, Scholes and then um, Gerrard and Lampard and Rio Ferdinand and John Terry and all these, all these I've got. So he's a real, Ashley Cole, without doubt England's greatest ever left back. And so he, he got the honour of being the England captain um, during that time, but that team achieved absolutely nothing. And not only did they achieve nothing, they didn't get close to really achieving anything. They lost a couple of penalty shootouts um, in sort of, I think, the quarterfinal of Euro 2004. They were, they can class themselves as unlucky. They can class themselves as unlucky in Beckham's last ever tournament, which was World Cup 2006, because they, they went down to 10 men after Rooney got sent off and took uh, Portugal to a penalty shootout, which they lost. Um, and... That was kind of it. I think after after you know um, World Cup two thousand and six, that was effectively the end of of, of Beckham's um, England career. They were so consistently during that time awful to watch. They looked like a a, a bunch of sort of you know um, uh, players who were in different cliques and factions who would look like strangers on the pitch. So as captain, he singularly failed to kind of deal with that and pull people together and make demands of standards on the pitch. Because if the manager isn't going to do that, Sven Joran Eriksson during that period of time, then it is your responsibility as captain to bang heads together or make whatever push for whatever changes you need to do. But he lacks the character um and the bollocks to do that. And just he and that is essentially it because he the man is a fraud. He is somebody who 
set is almost like a royal in that his strategy towards <laughs> achievement in public life is to say as little as possible, but just to put himself next to the right people in photographs and to, when he is forced to speak, just engage almost entirely in vacant, empty, meaningless platitudes about what an honour it is and what a dream it has been and, you know, how it's amazing and, you know, he's just delighted to to do it and he will always give his best for England, blah, 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 blah. He's literally exactly the same as Prince Charles or King Charles, whatever he fucking calls himself now, turning up at a shopping centre and saying what an honour it is to meet the people. It's exactly the same. (laughs) And I can only assume that that is a result of his media team, his, you know, incredibly well sort of determined, well-funded and well-briefed media team, recognising that, you know, his strengths lie in his looks and not what comes out of his mouth because he is, I would say, um, you know, he, he lacks personality, he lacks intellect, but he has the benefit of being very good looking. So he can, so just stand there, say it, don't say anything challenging, but just present yourself as this kind of icon. And he, his, his spell as England captain it isn't just notable by um, the team's lack of um, achievement, but also him personally. And this is another one of my massive frustrations. So he, his most iconic moment, without a doubt, for in an England shirt was when England were trying to qualify for the 2002 World Cup and they had somehow despite beating Germany in Munich 5-1, they had somehow got to a stage in the last game at Old Trafford against Greece. Wembley was being rebuilt, so they were playing their games at all the big regional stadiums. Um, And they they put in such a pitiful performance that Greece, who were an awful team at the time, didn't get anywhere near qualifying from that group, had um, uh, outplayed England and put them in a position where they needed, like, you know, a couple of goals. Um, to, to get the win they needed to, or it might have even been a draw. I don't even fucking remember. All I do remember is that David Beckham in that game put in an outstanding performance. He ran himself all over the pitch. Um, he was incredibly, he was sort of stepping up where other players were kind of um, uh, underperforming. And then late on in the game, he puts in a brilliant free kick in the top corner from 30 odd yards. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Right. No, no question about that. But it's a fucking qualifier against a third rate team in a match that they should have been winning anyway. And you are considered an international great if your best performances are reserved for the very biggest matches. And he, there is not an example of a match in his entire career, certainly international level, very few at club level, where he was the difference or something that he was involved with was the difference in a really big game when it really mattered. And I can hear almost hear the, the sycophant screaming, ah, oh, but he scored a penalty against Argentina in World Cup 2002 in a 1-0. Yeah, he did. He scored a penalty. Well done. He was the penalty taker. England won a penalty in that match and he scored it. But that isn't a kind of being the guy who scores the winning penalty isn't the the the, the thing that sort of defines, you know, you you did your job as, a, as the penalty taker. Brilliant. But the idea that he is, as a result of this tepid, underachieving period of English international football, he, that he somehow comes out of that regard as this icon, based on what? Based on what? It was an awful period to be watching England. They were awful to watch. They, were, they lacked any sort of cohesion and spirit as a team. 
They were uninspiring. They achieved absolutely nothing. And they've essentially had to kind of reinvent themselves over the sort of, you know, since he um, uh, was no longer part of uh, the England team, they've had to kind of reappraise their whole approach to international tournaments and how they engage with each other as a squad as a result of how awful things were during that period of time. And it's so rare, blessedly rare, that you hear a conversation about Beckham in his playing career where people actually tell the truth. But I remember a few years back, I think it was the um, it was the anniversary of like uh, maybe 150 years since the first ever international match between England and Scotland. And as ever, they get you know go through these really cliched, boring, greatest ever England team thing. And he he was in the conversation. Now, thankfully. You know, some of it was public vote and experts and all that. He didn't get anywhere near the the, the team, or, or he might have maybe made the bench or whatever. But he, but Chris Waddle uh, had the good grace. He, I was listening to a debate on Five Live where he actually stepped up, challenged the orthodoxy, and said he shouldn't be anywhere near it. Like he, he you know, nothing about it. Like it just shows you how people these days are driven by celebrity. They're driven by iconography. They are driven by image rather than and and also they're too lazy in this kind of digital age where everything's available at the touch of a button to properly analyze performance above image and also what happened in that kind of pre-digital age like other players who played on the right for England who are were significantly higher achieving and, and better than him Stanley Matthews one of the greatest footballers of all time but because he played in the kind of black and white period just after the second world war well before and after the, the, the Second World War, you know, that, how many, you know, 21-year-olds are going to really know about him? So they just, But I, when you say something critical about David Beckham, you challenge his greatness as a player. People look at you quizzically, especially kind of younger people who, and, and the annoying thing is most of them wouldn't have even watched him play anyway. They just, because, because he's, and, and this comes to the crux of the biggest problem with him, really. He is, <laughs> he is somebody, despite his lack of personality, and his complete lack of sort of you know charisma and his, and having anything to interesting to say on any subject, some people will blame his wife for it. I think that's possibly quite misogynistic because he's his own person, and it's classic you know blame the wife sort of hateful to women. You know he he's he's his own boss, right? But he has been very very carefully kind of staged managed to maximise his earning potential since the sort of you know mid to late nineteen nineties. And he will put himself pretty much with any brand. He would turn up to the opening of a fucking envelope if there was enough press there, if there was enough prestige in it for him. And where you get the little moments, because, you know, some people say, oh, yeah, so what? Loads of people maximise their their earning potential. Or they, um, you know, do all they can to kind of be an ambassador and be a representative. But why does he do it? Why was he so keen to get involved in the bids for um, the London 2012 Olympics and England's doom bid for the 2018 World Cup? Is it because he's, he, want, he served his country so honourably and he loves it so much that he wants to give something back? Or is it, as when we got a little look under the magician's cloak a couple of years ago, that he's absolutely desperate for as many honours next to his name as he can possibly get and the personal prestige that goes with that? Because in that beautiful leak that really showed you the the reality of what he is and what he represents. His obsession with getting a knighthood 
uh, in that email that leaked was, which I think was to his, it was like his PR manager or something like that. When he referred to the, uh, the panel that decide on uh, recommendations for um, um, knighthoods as cunts. Uh, Mr. Softly Spoken, Mild-Mannered Ambassador, you know, Man of the People, I'm honoured to be here. It's an honour to represent my country. You know, oh, it was an honour to meet the Queen. Blah, blah, blah. He was was calling people cunts because they didn't give him the fucking knighthood that he so desperately wants because of the raging, driven ego that lies behind this banality of his public image. And another thing that I found absolutely nauseating, which anyone with half a fucking shred of credibility should surely agree with me, was when during the week of the Queen's death, uh, in which there was, you know, what, I, don't, I can't remember how long the queues were to see uh, her, um, uh, what's a nice way of saying corpse? It, what, <laughs> uh, queuing up to see, the, yeah, yeah, see the Queen's corpse. Um, uh, he was spotted... Uh, you know, apparently ran at random. He was spotted um, standing dutifully in the queue, um, just with the normal people, no security or anything. Um, and that was a you know, just just honouring you know, honouring his queen, not asking for any favours. And it just so happened that the world's media like spotted him. Do you think they spotted him because maybe he he made damn fucking sure that he was spotted? Or do you think in order to make damn fucking sure, just in case all the feeders that he would put out and tip-offs that his PR team would have absolutely 100% certainly put out, that he, to make double sure, he literally turned up looking like a um, Savile Row version of a Peaky Blinder. So he was dressed head to toe in the most like beautifully tailored Peaky Blinder style uh, outfit with the hat and everything. And I just say, you, you clearly stand out. You're not trying to blend in. If he was genuinely trying to just go down there and honour his fucking queen and just be a normal, humble man like he loves to sell it to everybody that he is, he would have turned up in a fucking tracksuit top and a pair of jogging bottoms and a pair of tatty old trainers and just stood in the middle of that queue, not on the outside, and just put his fucking head down. To think, okay, I'm going incognito because I'm David Beckham, and if people spot me here, they're going to make it about me. And if he genuinely didn't want to, if he, all he wanted to do was go and honour the Queen, that's what he would have done. But instead, he t- stood there like the fucking animated clothes horse that he actually is, and made damn sure took great delight in being. Again, it feeds into it's part of this ongoing quest to get an, a knighthood. He just thinks I've called him cunts. They must fucking hate me now. So I've got some making up to do. So I'm gonna I'm gonna queue up and honour my queen. And it and then it acts as a juxtaposition to Philip Schofield and Holly Willoughby, who were seen as kind of queue jumpers, and that you know they use their celebrity to uh, try and um, progress their position in the queue and you know not be mem- normal people, not queue like everyone else. But Beckham, oh, because he's this great humble guy. He just stood there in line, blah, blah. It's just everything about him is a fraud. And the fact that he is now being called out by members of the LGBT uh, community, the fact that Joe Lysett uh, is uh, humiliating him by saying, by taking £10,000 of his own money, which call it a stunt, but he's going to do this. He will... Uh, I, I can't remember whether he's going to tear it up or set a light to it. He's given David Beckham essentially a um, a time limit. And he said, if you cut your ties, return the money that you're going to get paid by the uh, Qatari regime um, in bef- you know, before a, a, a set period of time, 
then uh, if you don't do that, I will tear up £10,000. If you do do it, I will give it to an an LGBT charity. And it's a test of whether he actually believes in the community that he claims to have been a great ally uh, of over the last uh, 20 years, or whether, in fact, heaven forbid, that was yet another just cynical marketing and publicity stunt that he just thinks, okay, what's going to make me, you know, sell more? What's going to make me popular with more and more communities of people? What's going to make me seem interesting and different? Ultimately, he never speaks out and actually says anything. He uses his imagery and iconography to align with stuff by just standing there next to something, standing on, you know, being on the front of something, turning up for things and just smiling and being the right photo at the right time. When he's challenged to actually speak out for these things that he supposedly believes so passionately about, he never does. And the only response to all the flack he's been getting over the last week is some rubbish, banal, sort of, you know, political mush of an excuse to say David has always supported... Uh, Qatar, the people of Qatar, the country of Qatar, and he sees football as a way to bring uh, dynamic change to a country or some bollocks like that. And it's like, fuck off. Like, why is it that everyone else uh, is getting grief? Uh, sorry, gets absolute grief. You know, Gary never went on, have I got news for you? Because some of the money that he's going to get paid over the next couple of weeks is coming directly from Qatari sports broadcasters rather than just ITV. And other people are being, you know, called hypocritical and stuff. David Beckham, until he, um, until he either comes out and actually has the decency to publicly explain himself or rejects the uh, the money, uh, refunds anything that he's already been paid and distances himself from a regime that imprisons people for being gay, uh, imprisons people for publicly displaying any sort of same-sex um, uh, affection. This is a man who's taken £10 million for, from that, that regime uh, despite working so incredibly hard to portray himself as an LGBTQ plus ally until he returns that money. He should be on the front page of every decent minded newspaper and there should be a campaign against him. Look, this, this guy is a fraud and everything he fucking stands for is a fraud. And there you go. There ends my rant. Um, I mean, honestly, I could talk about the guy all, all, all fucking day. Um, But, (laughs) But there you go. I look forward to him, you know, proving me wrong and coming out over the next few days with a really um, returning the money. Yeah, a profound yeah. statement about how ashamed he feels to take money from something that contradicts everything he appears to have stood by and stood for over the last uh, twenty years. I'm sure he'll he'll do that because if there's one thing that David Beckham is it is um, honour over financial gain. There's no doubt about that. He's a man, he's a man of honour. <laughs> Is that it, Matthew? You're just gonna. That's that's good. That's good. I just worry if I start speaking, Kaida will start howling again. Excellent. So good. To... Good. That's a good strategy. That's a good <laughs> podcast strategy moving forward. So we will uh, start bringing out some uh, World Cup related episodes. They won't all be ranting on David Beckham, but they will, uh, whenever possible, be <laughs> reflecting not just kind of what's been going on on the pitch, but obviously this World Cup coming up is of particular and unique interest kind of compared to other World Cups recently. But it's also actually worth maybe exploring that, just, you know, that as a principle, um, because is it fair, you know, despite all the 
quite distasteful things about Qatar. Is it fair to be so, kind of so harsh on the World Cup being staged there when four years ago it was in Russia? You know, and it has um, been, and what, what state currently in the world is more abhorrent than uh, Vladimir Putin's Russia? You know, and, and, and it does have a history of being in some quite unpleasant places. It was in Argentina during a military dictatorship where people were being, you know, disappeared and massacred. So, you know, there is a conversation to be had there of getting that balance right between, you know, shining a light on the distasteful things about Qatar, but also, um, you know, ensuring that the, the hypocrisy radar is turned, uh, you know, dialed right up to kind of guard against that. So that will be the aim. Uh, and until then, it's a pleasure to be back. I hope you enjoyed this uh, David Beckham rant episode with wolf sound effects. And uh, we will see you next. <laughs> we will see you uh, next time. And it's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from Matthew. <laughs>